Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, international best-selling author Jason Casper stepped into the interrogation room to clear a few things up. Jason enlisted in the U.S. Army in June of 2001. His first assignment was as a Ranger private where he conducted operations in Afghanistan and Iraq before attending West Point and graduating in 2008. Jason then served as an infantry and special forces officer, deploying multiple times to Afghanistan and Africa over the next eight years. During his off-duty time, he began running marathons and ultramarathons, skydiving, base jumping, and writing fiction, which is most relevant to today's discussion. His last Army assignment was as a Green Beret team commander. And upon returning from his final deployment in 2016, Jason published his debut novel, Greatest Enemy, and began the international best-selling David Rivers series. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Jason. Thanks for making time to join me today, and thank you for your service. I'm truly honored to have you here. Hey, Gavin. Thanks a lot for having me, and uh, service is my pleasure. I promise you. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, there's there's some real, real highs and lows in that. You know, it's not all entirely, uh, you know, ditch digging. Absolutely. I've read bits from your, your novels to prepare for this interview, and I, I'm genuinely impressed with the depth and breadth of your writing. Um, for readers who are new to you and your works, what do you want them to know about your current publications and any works in progress you've got going right now? Uh, my only current series is the David Rivers series, which um, the premise is basically former special operations guys working as mercenaries for a transnational criminal syndicate uh, that is using them to basically eliminate competition. Um, and achieve their objectives worldwide, um, more or less a journey of vengeance for the protagonist, David Rivers, um, pretty dark, pretty gritty crime, military-based thriller, uh, and upcoming, I am starting book one in a new series, um, book one's called The Spider Heist, and it's going to be the first in a line of heist thrillers, um, starting with, uh, kind of a very talented, capable woman joining a very high profile, very successful heist crew from the background of having worked on the federal task force responsible for uh, apprehending them. So the first book's kind of about how and why she switches sides. And then the series is going to continue with their, uh, their criminal exploits, pulling off heist, which is a favorite genre of mine. Yeah, that's a really fascinating concept. And, you know, it's uh, my, when I worked uh, counter trafficking operations, that was one of the things that um, my partners and I would routinely joke about, right, is, you know, we've got this very specific skill set that's incredibly marketable to some of the worst <laughs> people in the world. So if we ever went dark, there was no gray. It was going to be all dark, right? And what an interesting area to explore in fiction. Yeah, absolutely. You know, hopefully not in real life, but <laughs> definitely in fiction. Uh, reading through your works in your open source bio, it, it seems like there's an awful lot of Jason Casper in David Rivers. What has that been like for you to write a character who's so close to yourself? Uh, the first few chapters of the first books are indeed close to where I was when I started writing it, which is to say, mm -hmm. you know, a combat vet West Point cadet that was, you know, deeply depressed and dysfunctional and ridden with PTSD and kind of chasing adrenaline rushes through parachute sports um, to self-medicate, which is very much how I got into writing. Um, so as far as taking that into a character, that's really an amateur move all around. I didn't know any better. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, 
and when I started writing fiction, I didn't know where else to start from. I'd taken no creative mm -hmm. writing or anything. So that was just the impetus for it. And within the first, you know, chapter or two, it diverges into a completely fictional character. So I think basing a um, basic character on yourself is not a good, <laughs> not a good literary <laughs> technique. Um, certainly, I think the series has benefited mm -hmm. from elements of authenticity from the, the military experience, not just from me, but from a lot of the people yes. who consult on my books and friends of mine who contribute a lot in terms of, you know, providing insight for experiences that I've, for a large part, thankfully never had and never will. Yeah, it's interesting that you, you put it that way. My, my first series was a, a crime series that it's it's ongoing, but I, I need to kind of tie it up this year. But the, the main character and I share a lot of the same experiences. And I think um, you can kind of, as you mentioned it, a, you know, a rookie move or, you know, Bush league move that um, I wrote him too close to a lot of my own experiences in such a way that I don't think he's three dimensional enough. I think it was too limiting. And I, like, if I had to go back and do it all over, I would do so much different um, that, like you said, I didn't know any better. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the Achilles heel for doing that. It can be initially kind of a boon to your series, but I think in the long term, you you lack that objectivity um, to kind of like look at the writing, evaluate it, and make it better for the sake of the story rather than serving some, you know, ego agenda or, or personal issue. Um, and I have years and years of probably close to a decade of just David Rivers' book one manuscript drafts that are in the trash mercifully to never be seen um, you know to attest to that and it wasn't until I, I took the character very far from my own personal experience that i really got any quality writing done yeah and you know i think that um from one of the one of the major themes of of this podcast really is that reality that you know it takes about a decade of consistently putting in the blood sweat and tears necessary to become an overnight success and you've already already kind of alluded to that. Is that a, a kind of a fair summation of your journey in writing to this point? I had a decade of blood, sweat, and tears before I published my first book, and I'm still two years in working on the overnight success part. So I'll let you know <laughs> when I get there, but certainly holds true to my experience. If anything, that's a you know slight understatement with the decade. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's uh, the the perceptions that I had of the industry, the publishing industry and writing as an author before I published and after are, are totally night and day, right? Like I, I had this expectation that I was going to write this fantastic, authentic book based on my own experiences that really happened. And, you know, it was going to be so well received because of its authenticity that, you know, this tremendous uh, lightning strike of success, although I didn't realize it was a lightning strike at the time. I thought that was just the way it worked. And it turns out it's just like any other business that you have to show up to and open the shop every day, put in the effort and continually bring new customers and returning customers back. And I, I did not appreciate the work ethic and the diligence required to, to be a writer. I had very much a similar experience. Yeah. I think the, the initial tendency is to expect to write that great book and then, mm -hmm. you know, sit back and in the words of a friend of mine, wait for Hollywood to call. And the reality <laughs> is, the reality is there's a, there's a lot of marketing and advertising required to, you know, sustain sales enough to turn it into, you know, anything close to your monthly utility bill, much less a full-time mm -hmm. job. Now, with, 
writing based on your own experiences, um, even, you know, as obviously, you know, a, a very divergent character, right? I'm assuming that you're not out working as an international assassin for a criminal syndicate. Um, if you are, definitely keep it to yourself, man. That's not good OPSEC. But um, on, on that note, how do you go about deciding what amount of your research and your own experience makes it into the book to help ensure that everybody that's still downrange doesn't uh, doesn't suffer from any kind of uh, any kind of security leak. Oh, so I kind of have it easy in that regard in that, you know, my series isn't really based heavily on the, um, you know, the swoopy technology or the tactics and procedures um, that are currently, you know, on the leading edge of fighting the, the global war on terror and anything else. Um, most of the military principles applied to my series are very much small unit tactics based um, you know, ground maneuver techniques that you could find in a ranger handbook or small unit tactics um, handbook, which is, you know, open source publication. Yes. Um, I recently had to repurchase copies of both on Amazon um, to research my last book, which is very small unit tactics oriented. Um, and so I don't really have any concerns about the technology. And I also have, um, I do leverage beta readers from a variety of backgrounds, including uh, intelligence community, which I've never worked in. Mm -hmm. um, and there have been times even with stuff that I need for plot devices, i.e. tracking devices, transponders, where I've had, um, you know, a beta reader with a certain background be like, dude, you, you need to read. And I'm just guessing on ranges of accuracy and, you know, minor technical details um, and had them be like, redact this, redact this. Like, you, you're not specifying a piece of equipment, but like you used to hold the TS clearance. You don't need anybody asking questions. Just drop it. And I think with a lot of that stuff, unless you're doing a, a very techno thriller based book, you know, if it's something that you can't remove from the story without affecting the story, like your prob your plot is probably too heavily leveraged on a uh, piece of real world technology to fly on its own. Now with there are uh, a, a number of similarities, I think, between the police procedural genre and espionage thrillers in, in terms of like the basic structure, right? You have uh, good guys, uh, usually a, a whole band of them, um, group of bad guys and bad guys out there committing various degrees of, of heinous crime. When you're putting your stories and your plots together, do you typically start by imagining the crimes and the exploits of the criminals? Or do your uh, stories start out with you know the heroes and what you want them to accomplish or want them to overcome through, uh, through their own adversities? I think I very much start with the hero um, and kind of what breaking point I want him to reach, what crisis point at the end of the story that he's going to have to, um, you know, overcome or attempt to overcome, which may be successful or unsuccessful. Um, and then I kind of, you know, engineer the the, uh, the threat or the antagonist forces based on that um, just to achieve that end. Cause I think everything focuses around the protagonist or at least that's how I structure my work. Uh, I just recently uh, finished the the Ranger objective and have started the the greatest enemy, which is you know obviously you know I'm I'm very late to the David Rivers party, so I'm trying to play catch up here. Um, but you did a, a really fantastic job of hooking me as a reader with that short story, the Ranger objective, um, and then very shortly thereafter, right, you turn the protagonist's life totally upside down, um, and as writers, we are routinely and deliberately most cruel to our, our most beloved and important characters. And <laughs> Absolutely. 
you've you've already you know alluded to mention that you know a lot of a lot of you know the beginning of David Rivers character was was born out of your your own frustrations your own experience um, but I, I wonder how tough that was to write or how did you decide what kind of wrecking ball you were going to put into this guy's life to, to start this series out so for the wrecking ball um, I had I had enough I think wrecking ball experiences uh, personally you know as as everybody does the, mm-hmm. how I used it was basically leveraging it into you know what took this protagonist's life and a certain decision to drive him to a breaking point that would intersect his paths with a you know a former special operations mercenary gang um, to achieve that plot end. Yeah, so it sounds like more much more of a a, a psychological decision than a what what would it take to make a, a good guy starting at point A arrive at this you know point zero. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the emotional angle is an important one. And that's kind of regardless of your background. I think, you know, everybody just as humans, we all have those emotional experiences and those, you know, those extremes of the human experience, both good and bad, um, that we can pour into the characters, um, no matter what. And I don't care if it's fantasy, thriller, sci-fi. Um, and that's what makes like a good story resonate with people of all ages and backgrounds and levels of experience in different fields. Cause everybody can identify with like those core emotional factors and what drives people to make certain decisions. So that's, that's the one thing that I think um, really like the best writers and certainly what I attempt to do is to, to pour personal emotional experiences into the characters to give that authenticity to the work. And on, on that note, you, uh, a couple things you did in the, in, in that opening short story, the Ranger objective really grabbed my attention like that. And uh, this one uh, statement in the initial firefight in that story, um, you, I'm just going to, just going to quote it so I don't mess it up here, but the, the humming cackle of machine gun fire was soothing, reassuring, and it's calibrated familiarity, bringing order to chaos. That is, you know, in, in such a short and concise statement, um, I think that, to me, really differentiated immediately um, your writing as someone with some very personal experience on these things from someone like me who would try to replicate that through a technical advisor, or research, or you know, YouTube videos, or you know, watching fiction or write fiction. Um, and I really appreciated the the level of authenticity and depth that that simple statement brought to uh, brought to your story. Yeah, thank you. I I appreciate it. I think that that short story in particular was uh, that's the first time I'd written in that super concise format, and uh, it was certainly a challenge to to convey um, all the situational aspects in such a such a concise word count. Um, and yeah, I, I'm I'm pleased you enjoyed that line because that's one of the things I was trying to get across. I know, you know, going into unfamiliar situations is no different from law enforcement. You know when you, when things kick off and there's, you know, gunfire and unfamiliar, mm-hmm. you know, you hear AKs, foreign weapons or whatever the case may be, non, non-issue weapons kicking off. It's, you know, it becomes reassuring when you're back to what you know, which is hearing, you know, your own organic weapon systems opening up to respond and the radio communications opening up for people maneuvering. Um, yeah. So I did very much try to try to bring that, uh, bring some level of authenticity to that work. So I'm, I'm pleased I succeeded in that line, if nothing else. 
the uh, I also laughed out loud. Um, you used a, a term in here that I, I hadn't heard outside law enforcement, a, a, a dumpster fire, <laughs> which yes. you know, has a, a really unique, unreplicated stink um, that, you know, I, I think very few people have the picture <laughs> of living or working around. But uh, a friend of mine, and what really made me laugh about it, too, is that a, a friend of mine makes fun of the medical marijuana industry by asserting that the names given to some of their some of their strains uh, kind of undermine their application as a legitimate remedy. And he specifically <laughs> claims to have found a strain for sale called Alaskan dumpster fire. <laughs> so it, it was, uh, you know, as soon as I saw that, I'm like, that's fantastic. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Good to know that the uh, military lexicon to some extent uh, mirrors the medical marijuana industry. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, I think um, everything in, uh, in, you know, kind of, I, I guess throughout society, it's becoming right. But you know, the the military uses so heavily uh, uh, acronyms and, and nicknames that you know law enforcement then steals, or we create our own sure. acronyms to sound important. And now it's to the point that you don't know you have a serious medical condition until it becomes an acronym, right? You know, like it's not low testosterone anymore; it's low T. You know, yeah. Uh, you know, then you know it's serious, and you need a doctor, right? That's when it's legitimate. Sure. Yeah. Um, do you have a, a, a favorite acronym you still use uh, in your routine civilian life from the military you just can't get rid of? Oh, man, there were so many, some of them highly profane. Um, <laughs> and I'm actually talking here. I'm comforted with uh, you mentioned earlier, like the similarity between like, you know, thrillers or mm -hmm. uh, law enforcement crime thrillers and espionage military thrillers. Um, and I think part of it is this personality is just so similar. And I'm struck every time I'm with, you know, military guys hanging out with cops or I'm with cops and I'm the only military guy. The, it seems like the personalities are so similar. Um, and you know, recently I, I had the great pleasure of getting to meet uh, Brian Shea, who's a crime thriller yeah. writer, um, future guest, I believe, of yours. But uh, yeah. so he just retired from being a detective. Um, so we come from similar backgrounds, you know, spending a certain amount of time in, in our respective profession and then going into writing full time. Um, and it's, it's so similar. Like you start talking and I will never, I'll never pit my own experience. You can't beat a cop on stories. I think cops and nurses. <laughs> everybody else now you're to write. flattering the host, but continue. Yeah. Yeah. Go on, go on. <laughs> Yeah, I think that I think that reflects somewhat in the genres and that, you know, people yeah. trying to depict cops or people trying to depict, depict uh, military types. The personalities are just so similar, maybe by virtue of what those professions kind of magnetize uh, to mm -hmm. them in terms of talent. That, uh, yeah, I think the only people who can go head to head with uh, military guys for acronyms are cops. Yeah, it's uh, it's really ridiculous how much my profession tries to imitate yours i you know from our paramilitary origins but also from you know we uh a lot of guys coming back especially now you know coming back from the the, the various sandboxes overseas that the guys that were all um you know infantry their their whole time they don't have a lot of those guys a whole lot of other skill sets other than you know shooting security and you know surveillance kind of work and it doesn't translate well to a lot of other things outside the DOD contractors. So, you know, we, we get a lot of those, a lot of those recruits and I'm incredibly grateful for their experience and oftentimes, you know, their maturity, especially under stress that it, it makes all the difference when those guys um, show up in, in our teams and in our patrol squads and um, you know, 
aren't immediately uh, shaken. You know, the first time shit starts going south because you know every plan, you know, uh, or no plan survives first contact, right? Yeah, that's the truth. Uh, one of the one of the other things that I, I really appreciated about your writing too, and that's been a bit of a struggle for me um, over my, my last couple books that have dealt with with Islamic terrorism, uh, is that those those characters um, have become a caricature almost, right? Uh, this two dimensional yeah thing that really, to me, oftentimes just symbolizes the most feared, most hated, or um, cartoonish aspects of what we assign those belief systems, those personalities. And um, the way that you brought in the reality of, you know, these foreign fighters, um, you know, ca Caucasian Islamists from all over the world pouring into these areas and become an unexpected adversary. Um, I, I really appreciated that level of authenticity and that guy became to me almost an immediately three-dimensional character without you having to tell me a whole lot about him. I was really impressed with that. Sure. And I, I think that's, that's one of the greatest compliments. Um, I think any writer can get is doing justice and creating empathy for their antagonist, uh, for their villain. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, with regard to portraying Muslim antagonists, Muslim extremists, uh, Islamic ideologists in particular, um, the recent Amazon Prime rendition of the Jack Ryan series, uh, I thought did just a superb job of mm -hmm. taking what would become, you know, an, an ultimate, you know, Islamic extremist villain and starting from traumatic events in the childhood, going into, you know, him living in the Western world and his continued, you know, degradation at the hands of, you know, well-intentioned or ill-intentioned, you know, legitimate law enforcement entities. Um, you know, judging, discriminating against Muslim and kind of this continued path that pushed him to, uh, toward these events that would ultimately lead to a terrorist plot. And, you know, honestly, I think I've gotten that and I've written, you know, some nonfiction stuff. I used to do some blog posts and I've written about this before, but, you know, I've gotten the praise feeling even, even overseas like that, you know, sometimes the people were fighting, you know, if the places were reversed and I'm not talking necessarily super terrorist extremists, but the guys were like, Oh, there are, there's a foreign army in my backyard. They landed here. I'm going to go pick up my, you know, my AK 47 and go to the sound of the guns. And I think it doesn't, it doesn't take much more to envision switching places than, you know, if a, a Russian army or a Syrian army occupied, you know, your backyard and soldiers started patrolling your streets, uh, you know, regardless of what the political justification was. And I, I certainly do make an effort to, in fiction, make antagonists and villains that um, are doing what I would do in their shoes and, and what any reader would be doing um, if the roles were reversed. Yeah, and it's, it, it's interesting too. The other really overdone caricature that, that I see in, in, in fiction, but also just in, in current culture, in, at least in, in America, is the broken veteran. And <laughs> yeah. You know, it it is to me becomes so pervasive, right? I mean that it's it's a real conversation in the uh, the veteran community and in um I I work with uh with Team Rubicon and that's a big part of what we're also trying to overcome through that mission um is helping to stymie that that stereotype of this 
you know, PTSD vet who's just a ticking time bomb until they, you know, go, you know, shoot up a mall or, you know, go on this killing spree because they have all this training and there's just this brainwashed automaton that's just, it's so horrible. Um, but you, you see it so much. And when, when I actually started writing my, my first crime series, my original antagonist um, was a, a vet driven in a lot of the same ways that you've kind of driven David Rivers. But mm-hmm. my, my guy ended up, my original intent was that he was going to, um, that he was going to strike back at the um, kind of the financial oligarchy in the United States that had at that time that I was writing helped really create this horrible recession that helped him come home to an economy with no jobs, no opportunity, and all this, all this discrimination because of his, his, uh, his veteran status. And when it came time in the story that I was getting to the point that I was breaking him down, I couldn't write that. It was, it was so painful to me to even put this fictional character in that place for him to go bomb a, a financial building that he ended up being one of the, one of the heroes of the story and not bombing the building. But, you know, I, I put all that on a, a group of domestic separatists, but um, it's really uh, to me an, an overdone stereotype that just doesn't exist. Yeah. And I think the, the personification of that stereotype going back to that Jack Ryan series, this is one moment um, of the few in that series that made me just put my, my head in my hands and groan. And I think just mutter, some obscenity to my wife on the couch mm-hmm. beside me was um, when, you know, Jack Ryan character, like, introduced him early on and he like removes his shirt and you see all the scarring on his back. And mm-hmm. I don't know where I've seen it before, but I know I've seen it at least a half dozen times. It's kind of that here's your indicator that this is the trope of the, you know, the mm-hmm. veteran with a lot of baggage. Um, yeah, the, the, the back scarring, uh, I don't know, deer hunter. I don't know where else I've seen it, but I saw it in like, Well, that is like that cliche scene right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly in terms of um, you bring up a, a good point, like you started with this villain and he turned into a good guy. Um, I'm a pretty heavy plotter. Uh, and I, I've also had, you know, many times where the story, and I'm having it now, especially writing a new series where, you plot, you think you know what's going to happen, you think you know what you want for a series, and then as you start to write the story, it takes shape as something else entirely. My whole series premise for this next one, I, my current series is very dark, and this next one, I was like, I'm going to do this Breaking Bad type, she's going to go like mm-hmm. real dark, because um, that's, that's what I've done, I'm very good at it. When I actually started getting into the meat of the story and actually fleshing out the, um, you know, like, what do you truly believe, what do you want to write, where do you want to take this series, um, the answer was like more of like a redemption plot where, you know, the character finds her, her salvation um, in, you know, a very, very unlikely place. Uh, and the whole series took a different shape. And I had notes on, I think a seven book plot arc that just you know more or less went out the window. Uh, and I think it's pretty important in the creative process. And this isn't my unique thought. I know a lot of craft instructors have said the same thing where even if you're plotting, if your finished story is lockstep, hundred percent in sync with what you envisioned when you started writing it you're not giving yourself enough room to maneuver and you're not letting your your creative and your subconscious let things take flight on their own and the best way i've heard it put by uh vince gilligan the director of breaking dead in an interview he's like 
he's like, I like to have a roadmap, but he's like, you have to be ready to be willing to sacrifice the, uh, the good for the great. So if you had this great idea and you get two episodes in and suddenly it's taking a different shape and this could be developed into something better. He's like, the notes go in the trash and you follow it. And they had entire seasons in that show where they had a script that they just threw in the trash and uh, pretty much winged it for the duration of the season. Yeah, and that's amazing. I, I started out, the first effort was a total pantser that I had. Uh, an idea of where I wanted to end, but not how I was going to get there at all. And I think I drove, I probably added 1500 miles to that cross country trip going North and South instead of East West. But um, since then I very heavily devolved or evolved, I guess, depending on your perspective into a very heavy plotter. Um, But I, I, uh, I definitely agree with that though, that, you know, you have to be uh, still be willing to allow the story to tell itself. And if you're going to, to stick very rigidly to that, I think you're going to come up short of what you could have achieved. Yeah, you know, and you, you bring up a great point. I had very much the same experience where my first book was I had no, I didn't study craft. I had kind of this terrible attitude, like, I'm an artist, man, I got to explore the space. <laughs> and, and I just winged it, like start to finish. Um, mm-hmm. And I had just years of drafts built up, like I said. And then when I was actually getting out of the army and I was within um you know 90 days of going on my final leave and getting out um and therefore publishing i kind of looked back on the first book i think i was three books deep in that at that time and i looked at the first book when i just as objectively as i could and i was like this is unreadable like this is so bad and i erased pretty much the whole thing and like rewrote it from scratch the plot events in the first one at least kind of took the same path but I had to completely rewrite it. Um, And part of this is your writing improves by an order of magnitude. Like it's not the same. If you rewrite the same book, it'd be completely different. Yes. Um, So I I was putting in like 18 hour days, just fixing this book and just staying up all night. And like, uh, and I finished and I got it off to the editor on time, barely. And I just, at that point, I was like, this is not sustainable. Like if you want to make this career, like you can never do that again. Yes. Uh, And that's, that's when I looked into craft um, my book two and book three as I envisioned them just completely got erased. And I started from scratch with, okay, how do you structure, you know, crisis, climax, progressive complications? How do you structure the inciting incident? And now I'm kind of, I've kind of reached this medium where, you know, I plot down to where I have a few sentences per scene, sometimes some snippet of dialogue and I, I know where it's going and I've got my axing sequences um, and then as far as the actual nuts and bolts, the scenes, I'm kind of winging it as I go, but it's within a framework. Hmm. Yeah, I think we've, uh, we've had almost parallel writing experiences, except I think I took a lot longer to start realizing I needed to study greater craft. <laughs> but, you know, we're, I think we're at, a, at very similar points <laughs> at, at this, at this moment. Yeah. I, it's like you were just reading off of my, uh, my Shakespeare software there. Yeah, right. I, I felt the deep connection with you as soon as we started the podcast. So funny how that works out. <laughs> well, you know, I, I knew that there was going to be at least some difference between us when I when I started doing research on on you and all your online presence. Right, it, everything that I found about you online or found of you online has this 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 photo that really looks like you showed up for a uh, a body double casting call for Sean Connery's early James Bond career. Um, you know, and I keep the anonymous photo up because I have a face that was made for radio. So you know, <laughs> if this, if this thing doesn't work out, you can always jump back in the time machine and, and be a 1960 Sean Connery and still be successful. 
How funny you should mention that, Gavin. I uh, I recently came back from uh, you know get together where I met Brian Shea and some other mm-hmm. amazing authors, and uh, one of them was a uh, KF Green. She's not a thriller author yet, thank God. When she gets into it, we're in we're in trouble. Um, <laughs> we'll be right. fighting for readers, yeah. Yeah, she does urban fantasy young adult, but she's wildly successful. And uh, I never met her in person. And uh, <laughs> the first time she met me, she was like, wow. She's like, I thought you pulled like a Google stock photo up. She's like, I didn't realize you actually looked like that. And why is that your <laughs> author photo? She's like, you have resting dick face. You need to change it immediately. Like, and then she pointed, she like pulled up Brian Shea's picture and was like, look at this. It's a nice black and white. He is smiling. He looks approachable. She's like, you look like a pedophile. Like, change it now. Uh, and, and gave me so much grief about it. Uh, so, and then she posted it to her Facebook group, which is like 5,500 readers and everybody weighed in. And yeah, the overwhelming consensus, like it, all she, all the women were like, "Oh yeah, my husband thinks it looks like a cool James Bond picture," and all the women are like, "But yeah, a little creepy. You might want to change that before you start writing for a general <laughs> audience instead of super male-oriented, you know, crime thriller." Yeah, well, you know, it's uh, never realized before that I thought Sean Connery was a pedophile, but now, now I know. You know, I'll, uh... well, yeah, her words, not mine. I mean, that yeah, man yeah. is a, a treasure to Scotland and America. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's Sir Connery to the rest of us, yeah. Right? Now, has there been a moment in your writing where your 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 research or kind of new information has changed the the trajectory of the story that you had running through your head or the, the character's place in it? All the time. Uh, I'm actually going through that right now. I don't want to um, – okay, I will get into mild spoiler territory. Um if anybody cares for the upcoming work for the spider heist, um, part of the getaway uh, is subterranean, right? So I wanted um, this partially without, you know, getting into some bolts, there's going to be a partial like subterranean getaway tunnel uh, through a, you know, a drainage ditch where some of them are, are very big, big enough to walk mm-hmm. in. Um, and it's this kind of a network of things underneath the city. So in doing research um, where I started with that was uh, urban explorers, these people who, talk mm-hmm. their way into or out of, you know, places that are locked up, out of reach, trespassing ban through security forces yes. and everything. Um, and in those tunnels, like one of the big warnings in this, in this uh, book I was researching was like, Hey man, like if you are in one of these tunnels, like you need to check the weather if, and do not even approach it. If there's getting any rain on the horizon, because some of them are like main drainage pipes and they get fed into by a lot of different side tunnels. Right. Um, if you are in there, and there is a storm you're not planning on. And at any point, the water level starts rising, you detect an increase in barometric pressure, or you hear a vague white noise sound rushing at you from any direction, like make for the nearest manhole cover and just bail because these things can flood so quickly um, that you won't have time potentially to react. Wow. And I, I read that just in the course of research. I had no plans. It was supposed to be this smooth, you know, slick getaway, um, or at least that segment of it. And I was like, I have to put my people in that situation because, yes. you know, it, you know, better than anybody, right? As an author, like anything that makes life miserable, like anything you wouldn't want to undergo perfectly is solid gold for a story, particularly in thrillers, man, particularly. Um, so I was like, I want to put them in the situation where this storm is almost a character, right? Where they plan yeah. it for rain. So 
heli police helicopters can't fly. CCTV footage is really bad for visibility. Their getaway cars are all-wheel drive, outfitted with wet-weather tires. They're, you know, they have professional drivers. And I've got a, fortunately, thank God, I've got a, um, a former race car instructor and professional race car driver in my readership who's been advising me on all these maneuvers. So it mm -hmm. makes sense to do. Because if you're in a rear-wheel drive police cruiser, one, you know, first off, that's rough. You don't have skid pad training probably. And then one, you know, tire pressure is low on one tire. Like you're not keeping up. And when there's hundreds of cops and radios and everything, that, that could be the advantage that allows you. So the storm turned into this. They planned it for the storm, but then there's a flash flood warning. The guy decides to go ahead anyway against the advice of others. Um, and it puts them in this chaotic situation. It throws their plan off kilter. Now they have to get to their getaway vehicles um, through a different route. Uh, and it, it changed and elevated the story, I mean, drastically. And this just happened in the past couple of weeks where I'm like, I'm going to have to go back and wow. rewrite a lot. Yeah. Uh, but getting back to what we were talking about earlier, like giving your, yourself the freedom for sacrificing the good for the great or integrating things as your research continues, you find something as the works in progress um, to integrating that into the story. Uh, I, I think it's beneficial. And that's why I, I'll, I'll say that I'm a plotter, uh, but I'm not so much of a plotter that I won't adapt when I find something better. Do you have a favorite fictional detective or investigator or one that uh, you're reading right now that's holding a little bit more esteem than the others? Man, for favorite, I'm going to have to go with, uh, I, I can't seem to make it 36 hours in my life without mentioning Heat, the seminal <laughs> uh, movie. Uh, and I would, I cannot in good conscience say any name, but, you know, Vincent Hanna, which is Al Pacino's detective mm -hmm. character in Heat. So keeping that in mind then, and I, I ask this of all the, the authors that come on the show, but Jason, God forbid it should happen, but if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, what fictional investigator, assassin, or revenge artist, including Vincent, would you want on the case? You can have anyone. It is your murder after all. So let me give you a, uh, a dual answer that is going to fulfill a lot of uh, dark fantasies of mine. I would unite... Okay. Vincent Hanna, which is Al Pacino's detective character, to investigate my death. And then I would have Neil McCauley, which is Robert De Niro's character in Heat, avenge <laughs> my murder. And I think both men in that capacity working together would be just unstoppable. Uh, that would be, uh, I guess, a much darker version of the uh, USA series Suits, you know, uniting that uh, task force. <laughs> that yeah, that, that, they, they would be unstoppable. A much darker version. Yeah, if I were going to write fan fiction in anything, that would probably be it. <laughs> well, I greatly appreciate you making time to come on the show, and we've we've just barely scratched the surface. So I hope that when the when the next book comes out, you'll make time to come back, and we can continue the the craft talk here. Yeah, anytime. It's been great talking to you, Gavin. Thanks so much for having me on. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been international bestseller Jason Casper. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.